Thanks for joining us at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. Today's story, The Devil and Tom Walker, by one of our favorite authors, Washington Irving, who gave us many great stories, one of which, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, you'll find in our archives. This is a wonderfully crafted tongue-in-cheek tale with a particular antipathy toward moneylenders, then called usurers. It shows how much our culture has changed from the time in which few people bought anything on credit to a time now where almost everything is purchased on credit. In this story, you'll get the sense that Washington Irving is seen and railing against that cultural change, which he sees in the people of Boston as they flock to Tom Walker in our story for loans of all different types. You'll find much to enjoy in listening to it now, so we invite you to find a warm cup of your favorite grog and relax with us. We're going to give you a little bit of the background of Mr. Irving, who much preferred reading Daniel Defoe's Treasure Island as a boy than violin lessons, and it shows in his work. He's a great action writer and a great one to introduce to younger generations who are seeking good stories. I'll bet you didn't know that he gave New York City its nickname Gotham, or that the New York Knicks were named after one of his fictional characters. You all know that I really enjoy telling the story behind the story and sharing it with you along with great literature written by men and women with the bark on, so to speak. Washington Irving's bio is many pages, from which I'm going to spare you, but I will include some high points here. I was also surprised, upon researching his life, to see what an effect he's had on American culture. He was born in New York City in 1783, and lived what most of us would consider to be a pretty productive life until his death 76 years later in Terrytown, New York. He was a successful author, essayist, biographer, magazine editor, and diplomat, best known for his short stories, Rip Van Winkle and Sleepy Hollow, as well as his biographies of George Washington, Oliver Goldsmith, and Muhammad, and his histories of 15th century Spain, including the life of Christopher Columbus, stories of the Moors, and tales from the Alhambra. As a writer of Romanticism, he was never short of source material, especially while serving as the U.S. ambassador to Spain from 1842 to 1846. Irving, along with James Fenimore Cooper, was among the first American writers to earn acclaim in Europe, and Irving encouraged American authors such as Nathaniel Hawthorne, Herman Melville, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, and Edgar Allan Poe. Irving was also admired by some European writers, including Walter Scott, Lord Byron, Thomas Campbell, Francis Jeffrey, and Charles Dickens. As America's first genuine internationally best-selling author, Irving advocated for writing as a legitimate profession and argued for stronger laws to protect American writers from copyright infringement. The Irving family settled in Manhattan, New York City, and was part of the city's small, vibrant merchant class when Washington Irving was born on April 3rd of 1783. The same week, city residents learned of the British ceasefire that ended the American Revolution. Irving's mother named him after the hero of the Revolution, George Washington. At age six, with the help of a nanny, Irving met his namesake, George Washington, who was then living in New York after his inauguration as president in 1789. The president blessed young Irving, an encounter Irving later commemorated in a small watercolor painting which still hangs in his home today. Several of Washington Irving's older brothers became active New York merchants, and they encouraged their younger brother's literary aspirations, 
often supporting him financially as he pursued his writing career. An uninterested student, Irving preferred adventure stories and drama and, by age 14, was regularly sneaking out of class in the evenings to attend the theater. The 1798 outbreak of yellow fever in Manhattan prompted his family to send him to healthier climes upriver, and Irving was dispatched to stay with his friend James Kirk Paulding in Terrytown, New York. It was in Terrytown that Irving became familiar with the nearby town of Sleepy Hollow, with its quaint Dutch customs and local ghost stories. Irving made several other trips up the Hudson as a teenager, including an extended visit to Johnstown, New York, where he passed through the Catskill Mount region, the setting of Rip Van Winkle. Of all the scenery of the Hudson, Irving wrote later, the Catskill Mountains had the most witching effect on my boyish imagination. Around 1806, Irving was actively socializing with a group of literate young men he dubbed the Lads of Kilkenny, collaborating with his brother William and fellow lad James Kirk Paulding. Irving created the literary magazine Salmagundi in January of 1807. Writing under various pseudonyms such as William Wizard and Lancelot Langstaff, Irving lampooned New York culture and politics in a manner similar to today's Mad Magazine. Selma Gundy was a moderate success, spreading Irving's name and reputation beyond New York. In its 17th issue, dated November 11, 1807, Irving affixed the nickname Gotham, an Anglo-Saxon word meaning Goatstown, to New York City. In late 1809, while mourning the death of his 17-year-old fiancée, Matilda Hoffman, Irving completed work on his first major book, A History of New York, from the beginning of the world to the end of the Dutch dynasty, by Diedrich Knickerbocker, 1809, a satire on self-important local history and contemporary politics. Prior to its publication, Irving started a hoax akin to today's viral marketing campaigns. He placed a series of missing person advertisements in New York newspapers, seeking information on Diedrich Knickerbocker a crusty Dutch historian who had allegedly gone missing from his hotel in New York City. As part of the ruse, Irving placed a notice, allegedly from the hotel's proprietor, informing readers that if Mr. Knickerbocker failed to return to the hotel to pay his bill, he would publish a manuscript Knickerbocker had left behind. Unsuspecting readers followed the story of Knickerbocker and his manuscript with interest, and some New York City officials were concerned enough about the missing historian that they considered offering a reward for his safe return. Riding the wave of public interest he had created with his hoax, Irving, adopting the pseudonym of his Dutch historian, published A History of New York on December 6th of 1809 to immediate critical and popular success. It took with the public, Irving remarked, and gave me celebrity as an original work was something remarkable and uncommon in America. Today, the surname of Diedrich Knickerbocker, the fictional narrator of this and other Irving works, has become a nickname for Manhattan residents in general. And better yet, the name of the New York Knickerbockers, otherwise known as the New York Knicks. So now you know how Gotham City and the Knicks got their names. In August of 1824, Irving published a collection of essays, Tales of a Traveler, including today's short story, The Devil and Tom Walker, under his previously created Geoffrey Crayon persona. 
I think there are in it some of the best things I've ever written, Irving told his sister. And now, The Devil and Tom Walker, by Washington Irving. A few miles from Boston, in Massachusetts, there's a deep inlet winding several miles into the interior of the country from Charles Bay and terminating in a thickly wooded swamp, or morass. On one side of this inlet is a beautiful dark grove. On the opposite side, the land rises abruptly from the water's edge into a high ridge on which grow a few scattered oaks of great age and immense size. Under one of these gigantic trees, according to old stories, there was a great amount of treasure buried by Kid the Pirate. The inlet allowed a facility to bring the money in a boat secretly and at night to the very foot of the hill. The elevation of the place permitted a good lookout to be kept that no one was at hand, while the remarkable trees formed good landmarks by which the place might easily be found again. The old stories add, moreover, that the devil presided at the hiding of the money and took it under his guardianship. But this, it is well known, he always does with buried treasure, particularly when it has been ill-gotten. Be that as it may, Kidd never returned to recover his wealth, being shortly after seized at Boston, sent out to England, and there hanged for a pirate. About the year 1727, just at the time when earthquakes were prevalent in New England and shook many tall sinners down upon their knees, there lived near this place a meager, miserly fellow of the name of Tom Walker. He had a wife as miserly as himself. They were so miserly that they even conspired to cheat each other. Whatever the woman could lay hands on, she hid away. A hen could not cackle, but she was on the alert to secure the new laid egg. Her husband was continually prying about to detect her secret hordes, and many and fierce were the conflicts that took place about what ought to have been common property. They lived in a forlorn-looking house that stood alone and had an air of starvation. A few straggling savin trees, emblems of sterility, grew near it. No smoke ever curled from its chimney. No traveler stopped at its door. A miserable horse, whose ribs were as articulate as the bars of a gridiron, stalked about a field where a thin carpet of moss, scarcely covering the ragged beds of pudding stone, tantalized and balked his hunger, and sometimes he would lean his head over the fence, look piteously at the passer-by, and seem to petition deliverance from this land of famine. The house and its inmates had altogether a bad name. Tom's wife was a tall turbigent, fierce of temper, loud of tongue, and strong of arm. Her voice was often heard in wordy warfare with her husband, and his face sometimes showed signs that their conflicts were not confined to words. No one ventured, however, to interfere between them. The lonely wayfarer shrunk within himself at the horrid clamor and clapper clawing, eyed the den of discord askance, and hurried on his way, rejoicing, if a bachelor, in his celibacy. One day that Tom Walker had been to a distant part of the neighborhood, and he took what he considered a shortcut homewards through the swamp. Like most shortcuts, it was an ill-chosen route. The swamp was thickly grown with great gloomy pines and hemlocks, some of them ninety feet high, which made it dark at noonday, and a retreat for all the owls of the neighborhood. It was full of pits and quagmires, partly covered with weeds and mosses, 
where the green surface often betrayed the traveler into a gulf of black smothering mud. There were also dark and stagnant pools, the abodes of the tadpole, the bullfrog, and the water snake, and where trunks of pines and hemlocks lay half-drowned, half-rotting, looking like alligators sleeping in the mire. Tom had long been picking his way cautiously through this treacherous forest, stepping from tuft to tuft of rushes and roots which afforded precarious footholds among deep sloughs, or pacing carefully, like a cat, along the prostrate trunks of trees, startled now and then by the sudden screaming of the bittern or the quacking of a wild duck, rising on the wing from some solitary pool. At length he arrived at a piece of firm ground, which ran out like a peninsula into the deep bosom of the swamp. It had been one of the strongholds of the Indians during their wars with the first colonists. Here they had thrown up a kind of fort, which they had looked upon as almost impregnable, and had used as a place of refuge for their squaws and children. Nothing remained of the Indian fort, but a few embankments gradually sinking to the level of the surrounding earth, and already overgrown in part by oaks and other forest trees, the foliage of which formed a contrast to the dark pines and hemlocks of the swamp. It was late in the dusk of evening that Tom Walker reached the old fort, and he paused there for a while to rest himself. Anyone but he would have felt unwilling to linger in this lonely, melancholy place, for the common people had a bad opinion of it from the stories handed down from the time of the Indian Wars, when it was asserted that the savages held incantations here and made sacrifices to the evil spirit. Tom Walker, however, was not a man to be troubled with any fears of the kind. He reposed himself for some time on the trunk of a fallen hemlock, listening to the boding cry of the tree toad, and delving with his walking staff into a mound of black mold at his feet. As he turned up the soil unconsciously, his staff struck against something hard. He raked it out of the vegetable mold, and lo, a cloven skull with an Indian tomahawk buried deep in it lay before him. The rust on the weapon showed the time that had elapsed since this death blow had been given. It was a dreary memento of the fierce struggle that had taken place in this last foothold of the Indian warriors. Humph, said Tom Walker as he gave the skull a kick to shake the dirt from it. Leave that skull alone, said a gruff voice. Tom lifted up his eyes and beheld a great black man seated directly opposite him on the stump of the tree. He was exceedingly surprised, having neither seen nor heard anyone approach, and he was still more perplexed on observing, as well as the gathering gloom would permit, that the stranger was neither Negro nor Indian. It is true, he was dressed in a rude, half-Indian garb and had a red belt or sash swathed around his body, but his face was neither black nor copper color, but swarthy and dingy and begrimed with soot, as if he'd been accustomed to toil among fires and forges. He had a shock of coarse black hair that stood out from his head in all directions and bore an axe on his shoulder. He scowled for a moment at Tom with a pair of great red eyes. What are you doing in my grounds? Said the dark man with a hoarse, growling voice. Your grounds, said Tom with a sneer. No more your grounds than mine. They belong to Deacon Peabody. Deacon Peabody be damned, said the stranger. As I flatter myself, he will be, 
if he does not look more to his own sins and less to his neighbors. Look yonder and see how Deacon Peabody is faring. Tom looked in the direction that the stranger pointed and beheld one of the great trees, fair and flourishing without, but rotten at the core, and saw that it had been nearly hewn through, so that the first high wind was likely to blow it down. On the bark of the tree was scored the name of Deacon Peabody. He now looked round and found most of the tall trees marked with the name of some great men of the colony, and all more or less scored by the axe. The one on which he had been seated, and which had evidently just been hewn down, bore the name of Crowninshield, and he recollected a mighty rich man of that name, who made a vulgar display of wealth, which it was whispered he had acquired by buccaneering. He's just ready for burning, said the dark man with a growl of triumph. You see, I'm likely to have a good stock of firewood for winter. But what right have you, said Tom, to cut down Deacon Peabody's timber? The right of prior claim, said the other. This woodland belonged to me long before one of your white-faced race put foot upon the soil. And pray, who are you, if I may be so bold? said Tom. Oh, I go by various names. I'm the wild huntsman in some countries, the black miner in others. In this neighborhood I'm known by the name of Black Woodsman. I am he to whom the red men devoted this spot, and now and then roasted a white man by way of sweet-smelling sacrifice. Since the red men have been exterminated by you white savages, I amuse myself by presiding at the persecutions of Quakers and Anabaptists. I am the great patron and prompter of slave dealers and the grand master of the Salem witches. The upshot of all which is that, if I mistake not, said Tom sturdily, you are he commonly called Old Scratch. The same at your service, replied the dark man with a half-civil nod. Such was the opening of this interview, according to the old story, though it has almost too familiar an air to be credited. One would think that to meet with such a singular personage in this wild, lonely place would have shaken any man's nerves. But Tom was a hard-minded fellow, not easily daunted, and he had lived so long with a termagant wife that he did not even fear the devil. It is said that after this commencement they had a long and earnest conversation together. As Tom returned homewards, the dark man told him of great sums of money which had been buried by Kidd the pirate under the oak trees on the high ridge, not far from the morass. All these were under his command and protected by his power, so that none could find them but such as propitiated his favor. These he offered to place within Tom Walker's reach, having conceived an especial kindness for him. But they were to be had only on certain conditions. What these conditions were may easily be surmised, though Tom never disclosed them publicly. They must have been very hard, for he required time to think of them, and he was not a man to stick at trifles where money was in view. When they had reached the edge of the swamp, the stranger paused. "'What proof have I that all you have been telling me is true?' said Tom. "'There's my signature,' said the dark man, pressing his finger on Tom's forehead. And so saying, he turned off among the thickets of the swamp, and seemed, as Tom said, to go down, down, down into the earth. 
until nothing but his head and shoulders could be seen, and so on until he totally disappeared. When Tom reached home, he found the black print of the finger burnt, as if it were, into his forehead, which nothing could obliterate. The first news his wife had to tell him was the sudden death of Absalom Croningshield, the rich buccaneer. It was announced in the papers with the usual flourish that a great man had fallen in Israel. Tom recollected the tree which his dark friend had just hewn down and which was ready for burning. Let the freebooter roast, said Tom. Who cares? He now felt convinced that all he had heard and seen was not an illusion. He was not prone to let his wife into his confidence, but as this was an uneasy secret, he willingly shared it with her. All her avarice was awakened at the mention of hidden gold, and she urged her husband to comply with the dark man's terms and secure what would make them wealthy for life. However Tom might have felt disposed to sell himself to the devil, he was determined not to do so to oblige his wife. So he flatly refused out of the mere spirit of contradiction. Many and bitter were the quarrels they had on the subject, but the more she talked, the more resolute was Tom not to be damned to please her. At length she determined to drive the bargain on her own account, and if she succeeded, to keep all the gain to herself. Being of the same fearless temper as her husband, she set off for the old Indian fort towards the close of a summer day. She was many hours absent. When she came back, she was reserved and sullen in her replies. She spoke something of a dark man whom she had met about twilight, hewing at the root of a tall tree. He was sulky, however, and would not come to terms. She was to come again with a propitiatory offering. But what it was, she forbode to say. The next evening she set off again for the swamp, with her apron heavily laden. Tom waited and waited for her, but in vain. Midnight came, but she did not make her appearance. Morning, noon, night returned again, but still she did not come home. Tom now grew uneasy for her safety, especially as he found she had carried off in her apron the silver teapot and spoons and every portable article of value. Another night elapsed. Another morning came, but no wife. In a word, she was never heard of more. What was her real fate? Nobody knows. In consequence of so many pretending to know, it's one of those facts that have become confounded by a variety of historians. Some asserted that she lost her way among the tangled mazes of the swamp and sunk into some pit or slough. Others, more uncharitable, hinted that she had eloped with the household booty and made off to some other province, while others assert that the tempter had decoyed her into a dismal quagmire on top of which her hat was found lying. In confirmation of this, it was said that a great dark man with an axe on his shoulder was seen late that very evening, coming out of the swamp, carrying a bundle tied in a check apron, with an air of surly triumph. The most current and probable story, however, observes that Tom Walker grew so anxious about the fate of his wife and his property that he set out at length to seek them both at the Indian fort. During a long summer's afternoon he searched about the gloomy place, but no wife was to be seen. He called her name repeatedly, but she was nowhere to be heard. The bittern alone responded to his voice as he flew screaming by, or the bullfrog croaked dolefully from a neighboring pool. At length, it is said, 
just in the brown hour of twilight, when the owls began to hoot and the bats to flit about, his attention was attracted by the clamor of carrion crows that were hovering about a cypress tree. He looked and beheld a bundle tied in a check apron and hanging in the branches of the tree, with a great vulture perched hard by, as if keeping watch upon it. He leaped with joy, for he recognized his wife's apron, and supposed it to contain the household valuables. "'Let us get hold of the property,' said he, consolingly to himself, "'and we will endeavor to do without the woman.' As he scrambled up the tree, the vulture spread its wide wings and sailed off screaming into the deep shadows of the forest. Tom seized the check apron, but, woeful sight, found nothing but a heart and a liver tied up in it. Such, according to the most authentic old story, was all that was to be found of Tom's wife. She had probably attempted to deal with the dark man as she had been accustomed to deal with her husband. But though a female scold is generally considered a match for the devil, yet in this instance she appears to have had the worst of it. She must have died game, however, for it is said Tom noticed many prints of cloven feet deeply stamped about the tree and several handfuls of hair that looked as if they had been plucked from the coarse black shock of the woodsman. Tom knew his wife's prowess by experience. He shrugged his shoulders as he looked at the signs of the fierce clapper clawing. "'Egad!' said he to himself. "'Old Scratch must have had a tough time of it.' Tom consoled himself for the loss of his property with the loss of his wife, for he was a man of fortitude. He even felt something like gratitude towards the black woodsman, who he considered had done him a kindness. He sought, therefore, to cultivate a further acquaintance with him, but for some time without success. The old black legs played shy, for whatever people may think, he's not always to be had for calling for. He knows how to play his cards when pretty sure of his game. At length, it is said, when delay had whetted Tom's eagerness to the quick and prepared him to agree to anything rather than not gain the promised treasure, he met the dark man one evening in his usual woodsman dress, with his axe on his shoulder, sauntering along the edge of the swamp, and humming a tune. He affected to receive Tom's advance with great indifference, made brief replies, and went on humming his tune. By degrees, however, Tom brought him to business, and they began to haggle about the terms on which the former was to have the pirate's treasure. There was one condition which need not be mentioned, being generally understood in all cases where the devil grants favors but there were others about which, though of less importance, he was inflexibly obstinate. He insisted that the money found through his means should be employed in his service. He proposed, therefore, that Tom should employ it in the black traffic, that is to say, that he should fit out a slave ship. This, however, Tom resolutely refused. He was bad enough in all conscience, but the devil himself could not tempt him to turn slave-dealer. Finding Tom so squeamish on this point, he did not insist upon it, but proposed instead that he should turn usurer, the devil being extremely anxious for the increase of usurers, or lenders, looking upon them as his peculiar people. To this, no objections were made, for it was just to Tom's taste. You shall open a broker's shop in Boston next month, said the dark man. I'll do it tomorrow if you wish, said Tom Walker. You shall lend money at two percent a month. Egad, I'll charge four, replied Tom Walker. 
These shall extort bonds, foreclose mortgages, drive the merchant to bankruptcy. I'll drive him to the devil, cried Tom Walker eagerly. You are the assurer for my money. When will you want the money? This very night. Done, said the devil. Done, said Tom Walker. So they shook hands and struck a bargain. A few days' time saw Tom Walker seated behind his desk in a counting house in Boston. His reputation for a ready-moneyed man who would lend money out for a good consideration soon spread abroad. Everybody remembers the days of Governor Belcher when money was particularly scarce. It was a time of paper credit. The country had been deluged with government bills. The famous land bank had been established. There had been a rage for speculating. The people had run mad with schemes for new settlements, for building cities in the wilderness. Land jobbers went about with maps of grants and townships and Eldorados, lying nobody knew where, but which everybody was ready to purchase. In a word, the great speculating fever which breaks out every now and then in the country had raged to an alarming degree, and everybody was dreaming of making sudden fortunes from nothing. As usual, the fever had subsided, the dream had gone off, and the imagery fortunes with it. The patients were left in doleful plight, and the whole country resounded with the consequent cry of hard times. At this propitious time of public distress did Tom Walker set up as a lender in Boston. His door was soon thronged by customers, the needy and the adventurous, the gambling speculator, the dreaming land jobber the thriftless tradesman, the merchant with cracked credit. In short, everyone driven to raise money by desperate means and desperate sacrifices hurried to Tom Walker. Thus, Tom was the universal friend of the needy, and he acted like a friend in need. That is to say, he always exacted good pay and good security. In proportion to the distress of the applicant was the hardness of his terms, he accumulated bonds and mortgages, gradually squeezed his customers closer and closer, and sent them, at length, dry as a sponge from his door. In this way he made money hand over hand, became a rich and mighty man, and exalted his cocked hat upon change. He built himself, as usual, a vast house out of ostentation, but left the greater part of it unfinished and unfurnished out of parsimony. He even set up a carriage in the fullness of his vainglory, though he nearly starved the horses which drew it. And as the ungreased wheels groaned and screeched on the axle trees, you would have thought you heard the souls of the poor debtors he was squeezing. As Tom waxed old, however, he grew thoughtful. Having secured the good things of this world, he began to feel anxious about those of the next. He thought with regret on the bargain he had made with his dark friend, and set his wits to work to cheat him out of the conditions. He became, therefore, all of a sudden, a violent churchgoer. He prayed loudly and strenuously, as if heaven were to be taken by force of lungs. Indeed, one might always tell when he had sinned most during the week by the clamor of his Sunday devotion. The quiet Christians who had been modestly and steadfastly traveling Zionward were struck with self-reproach at seeing themselves so suddenly outstripped in their career by this new-made convert. Tom was as rigid and religious as in money matters. He was a stern supervisor and censurer of his neighbors, 
and he seemed to think every sin entered up to their account became a credit on his own side of the page. He even talked about the expediency of reviving the persecution of Quakers and Anabaptists. In a word, Tom's zeal became as notorious as his riches. Still, in spite of all this strenuous attention to forms, Tom had a lurking dread that the devil, after all, would have his due. That he might not be taken unawares, therefore, it is said he always carried a small Bible in his coat pocket. He also had a great folio Bible on his counting-house desk and would frequently be found reading it when people called on business. On such occasions, he would lay his green spectacles on the book to mark the place while he turned round to drive some usurious bargain. Some say that Tom grew a little crack-brained in his old days and that fancying his end approaching, he had his horse new-shod, saddled, and brided and buried with his feet uppermost because he supposed that at the last day the world would be turned upside down, in which case he should find his horse standing ready for mounting, and he was determined at the worst to give his old friend a run for it. This, however, is probably a mere old wife's fable. If he really did take such a precaution, it was totally superfluous. At least so says the authentic old legend which closes his story in the following manner. On one hot afternoon in the dog days, just as a terrible black thunder gust was coming up, Tom sat in his counted house in his white linen cap and India silk morning gown. He was on the point of foreclosing a mortgage by which he would complete the ruin of an unlucky land speculator for whom he had professed the greatest friendship. The poor land jobber begged him to grant a few months' indulgence. Tom had grown testy and irritated and refused another day. "'My family will be ruined and brought upon the parish,' said the land jobber. "'Charity begins at home,' replied Tom. "'I must take care of myself in these hard times.' "'You have made so much money out of me,' said the speculator. Tom lost his patience and his piety. "'The devil take me,' said he, "'if I've made a farthing.' Just then there were three loud knocks at the street door. He stepped out to see who was there. A dark man was holding a black horse which neighed and stamped with impatience. Hey, Tom, you're come for, said the dark fellow gruffly. Tom shrunk back, but too late. He had left his little Bible at the bottom of his coat pocket and his big Bible on the desk buried under the mortgage he was about to foreclose. Never was a sinner taken more unawares. The dark man whisked him like a child astride the horse and away he galloped in the midst of a thunderstorm. The clerks stuck their pens behind their ears and stared after him from the windows. Away went Tom Walker, dashing down the streets, his white cap bobbing up and down, his morning gown fluttering in the wind, and his steed striking fire out of the pavement at every bound. When the clerks turned to look for the dark man, he had disappeared. Tom Walker never returned to foreclose the mortgage a countryman who lived on the borders of the swamp, reported that in the height of the thunder gust he had heard a great clattering of hooves and a howling along the road, and that when he ran to the window he just caught sight of a figure such as I have described, on a horse that galloped like mad across the fields, over the hills, and down into the black hemlock swamp towards the old Indian fort, and that shortly after a thunderbolt fell in that direction, 
which seemed to set the whole forest in a blaze. The good people of Boston shook their heads and shrugged their shoulders, but had been so much accustomed to witches and goblins and tricks of the devil in all kinds of shapes from the first settlement of the colony that they weren't so much as horror-struck as might have been expected. Trustees were appointed to take charge of Tom's effects. There was nothing, however, to administer upon. On searching his coffers, all his bonds and mortgages were found reduced to cinders. In place of gold and silver, his iron chest was filled with chips and shavings. Two skeletons lay in his stable instead of his half-starved horses. And the very next day, his great house took fire and was burnt to the ground. Such was the end of Tom Walker and his ill-gotten wealth. Let all griping money brokers lay this story to heart. The truth of it is not to be doubted. The very hole under the oak trees from whence he dug kids' money is to be seen to this day. And the neighboring swamp and old Indian fort is often haunted in stormy nights by a figure on horseback in a morning gown and white cap, which is doubtless the troubled spirit of the usurer. In fact, the story has resolved itself into a proverb and is the origin of that popular saying prevalent throughout New England of the devil and Tom Walker. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. We appreciate your reviews at iTunes and your shares at facebook.com forward slash 1001 heroes. These help us to grow more than anything. And special thanks to all of you who have helped us. I have so many ideas for episodes for both shows, but I always enjoy hearing your suggestions. Just email me at 1001storiespodcast at gmail.com. For now, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.